Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind, a momentous day for uh, many people down at the state capitol today. It's the 40th and final day of the 2021 legislative session sometime late tonight or perhaps into the early morning hours of tomorrow. We will hear signy die from the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate. And by the way, if you do not like the pronunciation signy die, you Latin experts out there, try telling somebody you're going to go have lunch at Mary Mac's Tea Room on Ponce de Leon Street in Atlanta. They will immediately know you're a recent transplant from Chicago. We call it signy die down here in Georgia. Um, there's an awful lot that's going to be considered in this final day, some of which may never get out of the uh, General Assembly. The new election law has already passed through a course and signed by Governor Kemp, but it continues to make headlines. There are now three lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of the uh, law. Uh, but there has also been some misinformation. President Biden got a slap on the knuckles by the Washington Post when he uh, argued that the Georgia law was prohibitive because it closed polling locations at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, which is simply not true. So there is some um, information about the law, which is worthy of our conversation, as well as an ongoing discussion today about the ways in which the law may, in fact, hurt uh, uh, the numbers of voters who turn out for uh, the next election cycle. Um, we still, as I said, have plenty of uh, up for consideration. We're going to get to a lot of the bills that have uh, captured some attention during the session with our panel. Let me start by introducing Greg Bluestein. He's our regular Wednesday uh, uh, panelist, uh, political reporter, of course, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hey, Greg, how are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. You're uh, either at or on your way to the Capitol for this final day, right? I'm at the Capitol. And look, I don't even know. What, what is the actual other pronunciation of signy die? Because I've been covering this for almost <laughs> 16, 17 years now. I've never, I've never heard the real way to pronounce it. I believe, Greg, the Latin scholars would say sine die. Having taken Latin in uh, high school, I believe I'm correct on that. Um, we also are joined by your colleague, Patricia Murphy, political reporter and, of course, the columnist who writes the Political Insider column on Wednesdays and Sundays for the paper. Patricia, we're awfully glad you could join us on Wednesday instead of your usual Friday this week because we really want to get your take on what's happening down at the Capitol. Hi. Thank you. Hi, it's great to be with you. And I think it's actually pronounced signy by y'all, because that's how I hear it every time I hear it. It's signy by y'all. I think <laughs> uh, Professor Alan Abramowitz, political science uh, professor at Emory University, is with us. Alan, I'm looking forward to the conversation with you, because you have argued for a very long time that none of these, as much attention as these election laws are getting, you have argued that the data that you've collected show that um, it's going to have very little impact on who wins and who loses elections in the next cycle or so. Correct. And by the way, I always end all my classes at the end of the semester by saying, sign die. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I love that. The right we're way joined to say by it. Professor. Yeah, we're also joined by Professor Fred Smith, Professor of Constitutional Law at Emory University. Fred, we're happy to have you here. It's been a while since you've been on the show, but welcome back. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Good. Okay, uh, so let's get started. Uh, Greg Bluestein, um, I think you're going to uh, spend some time in the Senate uh, this morning and then uh, go, go on to write a, an overview of what happened today. So let's start by talking about some of the bills that are still uh, in consideration. I'll start with you and then bring in the rest of the panel. Um, everybody's waiting to see what happens with the citizens' arrest bill, the, the overhaul. And I think it's, it's been changed a little by the Senate, which approved it, gone back to the House. There doesn't seem to be much reason to believe it's not going to end up on the governor's desk for signature, does there? A virtual lock. And, and this is the legislation that would overhaul a Civil War era state law that allows Georgians to arrest someone that they suspect of committing a crime. And it's a, a priority for Governor Brian Kemp. Um, it is, I think, only had one no vote in the state Senate. It passed overwhelmingly in the, in the state House. So there's broad consensus over this. I think they're just a little wrangling over some, some minute details. And I know that minute details can always gum something up, but I don't think that will gum this up at all. This, of course, uh, came to everybody's attention last year in the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery um, when the first prosecutor in the case, assigned to the case, refused to uh, uh, take action against the uh, people who shot Arbery because they, they, he claimed they were acting lawfully under the state's uh, citizen's arrest uh, statute. Right, Fred? That's exactly right. This sort of came... Um, to the fore of the legislative agenda after that tragic shooting and uh, some of the defenses of that tragic shooting. Um, and, you know, it's really uh, you know, often uh, in our fair state of Georgia, uh, sometimes the best arguments tend to be, um, well, look, we're the last people, we're the last state uh, to not have done fill in the blank, right, on hate crimes legislation on so many areas. Um, and this is actually an area uh, where um, where the state is taking a leadership position. Um, and so um, this, this transformation of the citizen's arrest law uh, is uh, we're, we're, we're at the forefront of it uh, rather than uh, at the tail end of it. And that's something to be proud of. Patricia, um, I've, I've said on a number of occasions that there's, I, I think of another bill as in a sort of, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a way, a companion to the citizen's arrest bill um, because it's it's a bill that has been inspired by all the Black Lives Matter protests last year, the defund the police uh, chants that went up at the rallies in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Ahmaud Arbery, a slightly different situation. Nevertheless, um, what we now have is a bill that is going to prevent local governments from cutting their uh, police, their law enforcement budgets, by more than 5%. And um, that is a response to all the calls for uh, defunding the police, yes? Uh, yes, it's actually part of a nationwide effort that's going through multiple state legislators being pushed by GOP members um, across the country. And the objections that we've heard to this bill, and specifically the bill tells local police departments, but not sheriff's departments, just police departments, they can't cut their budget by more than 5% over a specific period of time. 
Um, legislators, Democrats have really argued against that on a couple of fronts. Number one, um, if it's a shrinking county with a shrinking population, what happens if you need to also shrink your police force? Uh, the second one also are Democratic lawmakers, including Beatwan, have said uh, if, a, if a municipality wants to decide locally what's the best use of their funds, um, pulling responsibilities out of the police department for responding, especially to mental health challenges, and assign those in a different way, assign that money in a different way to a different department, they should have that legal ability to do that at the local level. And, um, but it looks like, uh, you know, it's got quite a bit of Republican support. It's coming from Representative Houston Gaines, who we hear talked about as a candidate for potential, um, potentially for a House seat down the road, U.S. House seat. So um, I, it's, it's got a lot of Republican support, I'll put it that way. So it, it, it has a very good chance of passing along partisan lines uh, by late tonight, yes? That would be my expectation, but again, yeah. um, so many things happen to these bills, additions, subtractions, uh, what it started out as is not what it ends up as, and, and then it gains or loses support along the way. Um, but you know, I would Al, say right now it's something I think does have a, a good bit of Republican support. I apologize for stepping on you there. Um, Alan, um, this is another one of those bills that uh, undermines the longtime philosophy of the Republican Party in a general way that says local control should prevail. Government should not step in. You know, higher level government, feds or the state should not step in and intervene with local matters, uh, except when these are measures that the base uh, seems to like, Alan. Exactly. So, I mean, we've seen numerous examples where... Uh, Republican leaders at the state level have been quite willing to intervene to overrule, override the actions of um, local governments, for example, on things like mask mandates uh, just recently, uh, where they disagree with what the local uh, governments might be doing. In the case of uh, this, uh, this particular measure, I, I think what we see is that Republicans see this as a hot-button issue um, that they can use to, uh, you know, attack Democrats. Uh, this whole, this whole uh, issue of defunding the police, this, uh, defunding the police uh, is a terrible political slogan, uh, whatever the merits of the case. And so by highlighting this and emphasizing this, Republicans are, you know, trying to use this as a weapon against, against Democrats. Um, and, and maybe shift attention away from some other issues uh, that they'd rather not focus on, such as dealing with the pandemic. Patricia, um, another issue we're waiting to see the outcome of uh, is uh, whether or not the state's about to expand uh, gun carry laws again. Um, the, the bill that is now still in consideration would allow for people who've obtained guns in other states, licensed or not, in other states, to have the right to carry them without any additional process uh, happening here in Georgia. This, too, another controversial measure coming at a time when we've seen the awful shootings of the eight people in the um, spas in Cherokee County in Atlanta, the, the shootings in Boulder, Colorado, and, and yet, certainly, there is no effort to scale back gun rights here. Um, it's, um, it's full steam ahead on allowing 
uh, for this additional measure? Yeah, so this measure is uh, what they call a reciprocity bill. It says that anybody who has a weapons carry license in another state can then carry here in Georgia. Right now, you need to have a Georgia carry license. Um, that means that states with uh, less strict gun laws, which is possible, actually, less strict really? than Georgia, um, including some states that do not require a license to carry a weapon, then those people, if you're legal in your own state, you could be here in Georgia and do the same. Um, that has gotten a lot of concern from law enforcement, actually, who say they would really like to know that there's their uniform standards across the board. Um, and you described this as controversial. I would say it's not that controversial among Republicans. <laughs> this is something that yeah. they want, believe their base wants very much. And Governor Brian Kemp, uh, gun rights was such a huge platform for him and such an attention grabber for him when he won that Republican primary. I think that this is a bill that um, is uh, understandably <sighs> Not good timing for Republicans, especially after uh, those uh, mass shootings, but it looks like something that's got a, another a good bit of momentum. All right. Um, let's go down the list and get to a couple of other measures uh, that are on the ballot. Greg, um, there have been a couple of attempts. For the last few sessions, there have been efforts to legalize one form of gambling or another in Georgia, whether it's casinos, horse race betting, or uh, sports betting. The one that's um, been looked at as the most likely to pass has been a bill that would allow for sports betting. Um, I believe I'm right, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. There was a measure that would allow sports betting to be legal, would make sports betting legal without passing a constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. That has gone down, but there's still a measure that could be resolved today to allow voters to decide in a referendum whether they want to legalize sports betting. Yes? You're right. And look, the odds are not good for that happening today. Uh, that requires substantial Democratic support. And um, from what I'm hearing, Democrats are offer, asking for a, a number of concessions, uh, including, um, you know, there's there's some groups of Democrats that want expansion of Medicaid to be to be uh, a guaranteed next year if this is passed. So, again, this is a very, very tough road right now for supporters of of a gambling expansion. And Next year will be even tougher because it's an election year, and that's when, that's when all the parties have to go back to their bases. And for conservative Republicans, it's still a very uh, tricky issue. Um, all right. Well, we're going to watch uh, that as well. I, I, I don't want to uh, spend too much time on each individual bill, but there are a couple more I do want to ask you all about. Um, one of the measures that has been getting a lot of attention is, is a right-to-visit bill which would require hospitals and nursing homes to allow limited patient visits. So uh, even in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, um, there, there are families who understandably have been cut off from seeing people they love in nursing homes, whatever. And, and that measure's gone through some evolutions. But Alan Abramowitz, <clears throat> excuse me, there still is a measure pending that might open the door for people legal representatives of a, a patient in a nursing home to, to move in, to go in and see them. But it's at a time when we're still being warned this pandemic is not under control, Alan. Right. So I see this as part of um, kind of a larger issue, uh, which is the whole question of uh, whether it is still necessary to maintain the sorts of restrictions on various forms of economic and social activity 
at, at this time. And, of course, here in Georgia, we know the governor has already uh, moved to lift uh, a lot of these restrictions, even as we're hearing from the director of the CDC and from other uh, public health uh, officials, including some right here in Georgia at the CDC as well, or Emory, that this is not the time to be dropping our guard. Uh, even as vaccinations ramp up, we know um, that there are variants spreading out there that are more infectious and potentially more lethal um, than the virus um, that we were dealing with initially, uh, and that this kind of thing could be very dangerous. Now, the good news is that um, a lot of the folks uh, in the nursing homes and in um, uh, care facilities uh, for the elderly have already been vaccinated. Uh, they were in the top priority group, and a large proportion of them have received vaccine. And once they received the vaccine, I think that a lot of these facilities are allowing limited visitation by family members. So that's happening anyway. So uh, I would hope that would mean that the, some of the, the, the momentum uh, behind this uh, sort of uh, a, a move, which I, I would think is rather irresponsible, uh, you know, that, that that might be removed. Fred, this is as good a time as any um, to mention that we expect tomorrow Governor Kemp to remove all remaining restrictions that he had put in place under his emergency order in terms of people gathering uh, and the like. And, and again, it comes at a moment when, yes, thank goodness, the vaccination rate in Georgia has finally stepped up dramatically, but um, where you still have people... Um, like the director of CDC herself, um, saying we've got to still be uh, uh, careful here, cautious. Michigan has had like a 52% increase in coronavirus cases just in the, this week. North Dakota continues to have uh, double-digit increases. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's, um, it's interesting that we're going to see this bill uh, meet final resolution at a time when um, we seem to be, some people would say, letting down our guard, Fred. Sure. So a couple of thoughts. Um, the first is with respect to um, the bill, the nursing home bill. Um, you know, it got overwhelming support in the Senate. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, bipartisan in terms of its co-authorship. Um, and so, you know, I, I think what it really in some ways uh, speaks to um, is uh, is kind of – people feeling deprived of basic human needs, um, like being able to be with family for so long. And so um, I, I do, I, I mean, I, it's not that I take the view that it's not unfortunate, but it, but I do want to just note that, um, that this is a, a bipartisan, uh, a bipartisan bill. Um, yeah. I also want to note that it's not a bill that's just about COVID-19, right? So it's about any pu declared public health emergency, as I read the bill. Uh, and so both with this bill and with, with a few of the others, uh, they're very much about the now. They, it, it's, uh, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of foresight um, about, about – we, we don't know what the next public health emergency even will be. We don't know the level of contagion of the next public health emergency. Um, and so it's you – know, it, it's. I understand the place that it's coming from, right? Um, but it seems very much focused on uh, on the now and not necessarily on the future. Um, you know, more broadly, uh, in terms of letting down our guard, you know, I mean, we're at the end here. It feels like, 
Um, and you know what a tragedy it would be uh, if uh, if we have more loss uh, because we let down our guard when we when it feels like we're just just so so close. Um, you know, of all the lessons to learn from this, <laughs> I hope the lesson isn't <laughs> just let down your guard. I hope the lesson mm-hmm. is uh, how do we marshal public resources and how do we uh, marshal even you know constitutional doctrine and and uh, federal and state coordination in the future um, to better uh, to better address crises of these sort. Ellen? Well, uh, I would also say that the actions that we're seeing being, that are being taken now by the governor um, are entirely consistent with the way he has handled uh, the COVID pandemic from the beginning. Uh, we just had a, uh, an in-depth investigation conducted by um, the Atlanta Journal of Constitution into uh, Kemp's handling of the pandemic, and uh, in which they were able to obtain all sorts of documents uh, uh, indicating that time after time after time, um, he prioritized uh, business interests over public health uh, and overrode the recommendations of his own top public health advisor, um, who probably should have resigned uh, in the view of many people, uh, given what Kemp was doing. Uh, so I, I'm, it's not at all surprising that we're seeing Kemp doing this. He's not the only uh, governor who's, who's acting this way. We're seeing this in Florida, and we're seeing this in a number of other states. Um, and, and I think it's very unfortunate because I think it, it greatly increases the chances that we're going to see this fourth wave. Um, we're going to see it here in Georgia. Uh, and it's coming just at the time when vaccinations are are, are ramping up and we have a chance to really get this pandemic under control. All right. Um, I want to go back to uh, one more bill, uh, Greg Bluestein, that is still waiting for final resolution today, and it's been talked about quite a bit. It's gone back and forth. Greg, this is the bill that would create these so-called leadership committees that would allow for fundraising by, the, by, by legislative leaders and by the governor uh, for uh, uh, campaign uh, money that they could then distribute back to candidates. And initially, as if there's not enough money in politics already, initially this, this bill allowed for uh, lobbyists and other special interest groups to donate during the legislative session, which has always been forbidden in the past. But that bill has gone through an evolution, and it looks like the bill that is now under consideration is going to forbid it during the session, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the latest iteration of this bill um, would would try to blunt some of that criticism that they've been getting for creating these new leadership committees by amending a separate bill. (laughs) It's confusing to ban those funds from raising campaign money uh, from lobbyists and special interests. So essentially, if they create these new leadership funds, they still could raise campaign money from lobbyists and special interest during the legislative session. They still could raise them from other sources, but not from lobbyists and special interests. Patricia? Yeah, this is also a bill uh, that was specific to uh, leadership committees. And um, 
uh, complaints that I've heard in the hallways is that what if somebody wanted to challenge a member of the leadership or a statewide elected official? <laughs> Wouldn't this put them on uh, on less favorable footing? Wouldn't it give the incumbent uh, the advantage? And so um, this is one of those bills where it's uh, written in a bipartisan way, it would benefit both Democrats and Republicans, and uh, the areas of dissension are not really from the from the typical partisan corners you would think they would be. It seems to be, as usual, about power dynamics, and those power dynamics can be as strong within the parties as they are between the parties. Well, Fred, I think another concern about this measure was that um, if, if, if you were allowed to give money, if, if um, a, an elected official, the Speaker of the House, it, it, for, by example, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, was able to uh, pass out the money that that he or she uh, gets in these leadership gifts to members of the legislature. Uh, it could influence how they vote on measures during the session, which also was troubling to some people. Sure, right. So, I mean, that's in terms of uh, you know why candidates aren't uh, fundraising during the legislative session and so forth. I mean, it's that's that's the concern. Right, uh, the concern about these sorts of gifts, and also more broadly about contributions during the context of a legislative session, is that the uh, the probability that it might that votes might be influenced by said gifts um, is we understand we think it's higher, right? And so, uh, and so to the extent that this is sort of an end run around that, uh, that that's the fear. Well, Patricia, uh, th- my point being that hypothetical speaker could turn to a member and say, well, you didn't vote the way I needed you to vote on that bill. I'm sorry, you're not getting any distribution from my leadership committee, right? Uh, that's exactly right. Um, but not to be gross about it, this is exactly how Congress works every day. <laughs> you, know, you wake up on a Tuesday, you vote, you go raise some money across the street, you come back, you vote some more. Um, and uh, this is what politics looks like in a lot of places in this country. And I would say Georgia is the exception rather than the rule right now. Yeah. And, and it is something that we sort of laugh about in a sardonic way because it is just another example of the poisonous way in which money has totally dominated uh, politics uh, uh, and more so than ever, it seems today. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break in the show and come back. We do want to talk about the latest on the new election law and what's happening with that with our panel on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. It's signy die day at the state capitol, the 40th and final day of the legislative session. We're talking about that and more with Alan Abramowitz, Fred Smith, Patricia Murphy, and Greg Bluestein. By the way, uh, Patricia, you were just a, a, a young one back in the day when Thomas B. Murphy was speaker, but you said it's pronounced signy die, y'all. Many of us who covered him when he was the legendary speaker of the house 
will always uh, hear in our minds Thomas B. Murphy saying, sign die, in the very distinctive <laughs> way uh, <laughs> that he did over the many years he was there. Um, look, before we talk about the election bill, both, both you, Patricia, and Greg, is there any bill that you're looking for at today with some concern that I had? I'm sure I haven't mentioned everything, but is there any other thing we should be uh, aware of today, or have we covered the kind of main ones? I'm going to say the state the state budget has not passed yet. That's something to be yeah. aware of. That's the only thing they have to do all session, and that has not happened yet. Uh, we don't hear of any problems that it with it, uh, but it's not done yet, so that has to get done. Right. There's also um, really, yeah. There's also legislation that would create new new special interest tax breaks that is pending, and another one that could end up becoming somewhat controversial that would require new drivers. Um, to take instruction on the best ways to interact with law enforcement. So it's a sort of new civics course that was, mm. uh, I think, somewhat inspired by um, uh, the, 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 the social justice, the movement to, end, uh, to improve social justice over the summer. Okay, well, we will watch those bills as well as the others that we've talked about. And, of course, tomorrow on Political Rewind, we'll do a recap with our panel on what finally did happen uh, when the session came comes to an end late tonight. Ellen Abramowitz, um, there's been so much, so much attention paid to the election law that Governor Kemp signed last week, um, much of it criticism, saying that it amounts to voter suppression. Many of the measures in the uh, bill amount to voter suppression. Um, but you have maintained, as I said at the top of the show, that your data reveal that... Um, the Republican Party may want to put these measures in place, maybe to suppress the votes of Democratic voters, but it doesn't. Your data show that it doesn't work. Won't work. That's right. Um, so I tried to take a look at what effect the uh, changes in uh, the way people voted in 2020 had on the outcome of the presidential election. Uh, and other elections, of course. And what I found was that there was a great deal of variability among states, of course, in the extent to which they uh, adopted regulations that encouraged absentee voting or early voting. Uh, And therefore, what we saw was that the percentage of votes that were cast by absentee ballot or in early in-person voting varied tremendously across states. On uh, some states, mailed every voter an absentee ballot. And in those states, you had obviously very high rates of absentee voting, almost 90% or more. In other states, you still needed to provide some reason or excuse for obtaining an absentee ballot, and absentee voting was very uh, low still in states like Texas, uh, 10% or less. What I found, however, was that the extent to which states encouraged or restricted absentee voting, uh, as well as early voting, had no effect whatsoever on the outcome of the election, uh, how well Biden did versus Trump. That essentially, you, if you just looked at the 2016 election results and projected what would happen in 2020, you got, uh, for the most part, very accurate predictions. Biden tended to run slightly ahead of Hillary Clinton, of course. Uh, and that was true pretty much across the board, regardless of what uh, rules states adopted uh, regarding absentee and early voting, and regardless of the percentage of people who voted absentee or early. 
And this is consistent with earlier research done by political scientists that found that contrary to what uh, is often claimed, absentee voting does not favor Democrats. Uh, and, of course, the truth is that absentee voting in the past has been uh, actively encouraged by Republicans for their supporters. Uh, what had changed in 2020 was that Donald Trump decided to uh, that absentee voting was uh, right for, was fraud, uh, and, and therefore he discouraged Republican voters from requesting absentee ballots. And the result was that Democrats made much more use of absentee voting than Republicans did. However, that still had no effect on the outcome of the election. If you restrict absentee voting, what you're going to do is cause people to simply vote by other ways. Uh, you're not going to stop people from voting this way. You're going to generate pushback. You're going to generate resistance. Uh, and it's just not going to produce the desired result. There are other things in that law that I think are potentially more uh, dangerous or um, uh, potentially threatening from the standpoint of democracy than these changes in absentee and early voting. Okay, I want to find out what you mean by that in a minute, but 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 I, let, let's keep on the theme that you just uh, uh, laid out for us. You know, Fred, I said on the show yesterday, and please tell me if you think I'm making a point that's correct or not, we're never going to get a true test, a pure test of whether the law that is now in place in Georgia it had a negative impact on, uh, on, on the election in 2022 because, in fact, the law of unintended consequences, which is kind of what Alan is talking about, may suggest that the law will simply drive more Democrats than ever to the voting booths. It may encourage them to get out. And so if this is an effort at voter suppression, we may never find it out because there may be an overwhelming backlash from Democratic voters, Fred. Yeah, no, I think that's entirely plausible. Um, you know, as uh, as was just identified, you know, this bill was the, the bill that allowed, for example, for no excuse uh, absentee voting, voting and the like, that was passed in the early 2000s. It was at a time when Republicans disproportionately voted by absentee, and that's that. And at the same time, by the way, that that bill was passed, uh, that's when a voter ID initiative uh, came into being, and that's when the amount of money temporarily went up to $35 to get a voter ID. All of that happened at the same time. Uh, and so the no excuse absentee voting component of it was designed to uh, to help uh, the incumbent party, which was the recently elected uh, Republican majority. Uh, and so in terms of the law of unintended consequences, it is hard to know where this shakes out. But I, I will say that in terms of how this is playing out politically, this seems to be energizing Democrats quite a bit. It has national uh, attention uh, from the New York Times and uh, NPR and the president of the United States. Uh, and the, the part where they seem to have gone too far from a political standpoint uh, is the, the part we haven't talked about yet, which is handing out water and lines. That seems <laughs> to be where they, where they didn't recognize that they were, uh, they were tripping over a, a wire. They thought, I think they thought they had taken out a lot of the, a lot of the things that were going to cause a lot of backlash. Um, the Sunday voting, uh, for example. Uh, but, but, but this, this has turned out to be uh, uh, really kind of terrible for them. And the, the combination of that plus the arrest of Park Cannon, captured uh, or Representative Cannon, he's my state representative, captured on camera while she was knocking on the door. Uh, in a way that, you know, looked 
pretty polite to me while the governor was signing a bill of, of monumental impact. Um, that it, that could that could prove disastrous for them in terms of energizing uh, Democratic voters next year. Greg, yeah, I mean, look, um, I'm at the state capitol right now, where clergy members are going to be handing out bottles of water to lawmakers later on today as a sign of protest. Um, there has been a lot of misinformation about what that provision does. Um, you know, people can still bring food and water, and they can still get water from polling officials in line, but it bans outside groups from actively handing out bottles of water, food, pizza, all sorts of other um, you know, food stuffs to, uh, to people um, uh, waiting in line within 25 feet of the line or 150 feet of a polling place. But yeah, you're right. That has become one of the most controversial provisions. But I think the the one that we'll be talking about down the road is actually, um, and Patricia wrote about this, but the, the part of the measure that allows for that gives the state legislature, the Republican-controlled state legislature, and it will continue to be Republican-controlled in the not-so-distant future if Republicans redraw the lines the way that I expect them to, um, much more leeway over how elections are run by allowing them to appoint um, the, the majority of the state election board and uh, giving them more purview over uh, replacing local elections officials in, in emergency events. Yes, I uh, completely agree with Greg. Uh, when you really dig into this bill, SB202, um, the Secretary of State, uh, the position comes up again and again and again. The authority that the Secretary of State has over elections has been really dramatically reduced, and that authority has been uh, given to the State Elections Board, uh, which is going to be, um, is, and uh, uh will be even more so in the future, really crafted by the General Assembly and the leadership there. And uh, I talked to uh, Gabe Sterling, who is the top deputy of Brad Raffensperger, and he said, look, this is just nothing but political payback. The uh, Republican leadership didn't like the way we operated um, during the count and the recount, and this is political payback, pure and simple. Um, I would say it's a little bit more nuanced and maybe even a little bit deeper than that. Uh, it's not just about the recount. It is about um, the fact that I think legislators realize how much incredible autonomy Raffensperger had throughout 2020, uh, starting in March when he uh, was part of a uh, federal agreement with uh, the Democratic Party that sort of went into a lot of detail about how signatures could be challenged and rechallenged. Um, then when he sent out absentee ballots, applications to every mm -hmm. Georgia voter just got up in the craw of Republican leaders who thought they should have been told about that in advance. They should have had a say over whether that happened. Um, and then uh, there were a number of instances where uh, when Raffensperger made some moves, he didn't tell the legislators, and I think they may have even been surprised how much power he had that did not include them. And so when you take Raffensperger out of the equation, what if a Democrat is elected in the future? What if it's another Republican who is not super cozy with the legislator? But the legislators, um, typically that position has worked more in lockstep with leadership. It didn't this time, and this bill really reflects that. Um, Sam, maybe we can post Patricia's column today on this because I thought it was really an interesting look at exactly, you, you just talked about a bit of it, Patricia, but there's a lot more there. And Alan, I suspect 
that some of what Patricia and Greg said is what you talk about when you say there are other aspects of what is now law that concern you. And not only does the legislature take some power in terms of the election board, takes it away from the secretary of state, but the law also gives uh, uh, the state the power to intervene in a local election office if they don't Mm -hmm. think that an election is being run efficiently, particularly well. And the potential for mischief in that way uh, is uh, troubling to an awful lot of people, Alan. That's exactly what I was referring to. Um, I think that provision of the law uh, where the legislature is uh, seizing uh, greater control for itself over over the conduct of elections and the ability uh, of the state of the now uh, restructured state election board to, uh, to to intervene in uh, counties uh, and and, and uh, you know it's very concerning when we look at what happened last year um, where uh, we had a president of the United States who was spreading this uh, big lie that the election was stolen from him uh, and that. Uh, the Democrats in places like Georgia uh, were stealing the election uh, in counties like Fulton County and DeKalb County and uh, Clayton and other, other heavily Democratic counties. And you could see in the future the potential for uh, a more partisan state election board to step in uh, and, and perhaps uh, respond to some of these kinds of sorts of allegations uh, of irregularities and use that as an excuse for uh, potentially throwing out ballots. You know, so um, we won't know for sure how this is going to work until we go through a, a, an election cycle or two. But I, I think that there's a lot of concern. There should be a lot of concern about about that particular provision, much more than about that some of the other things that are getting a lot more attention. Fred, before we get to a break, let me turn to your area of expertise. There are now three lawsuits filed in federal court challenging uh, different aspects of the law the governor signed. Um, To to what extent do you think that there are cases to be made that uh, this law violates the Voter Voting Rights Act or other aspects of the Constitution? Sure. So uh, so the the primary challenges will be either around the Voting Rights Act or they'll be around, say, the 14th slash First uh, Amendment and the, the right to vote uh, that's been read into those particular provisions of the Constitution. Um, and uh, in the context of the constitutional argument, it's really a balancing test. Uh, so um, what will be important is an assessment of to what degree um, this actually does represent a burden uh, on lawful lawful voters uh, in terms of their ability to vote. And that will be true with respect to all of the various challenges. And that will be weighed against the interest that's been asserted by um, by the government, right? Uh, based on some of the things we've heard, you know, that can shake out lots of different ways, right? It could be that the, the burden isn't the burden isn't as high as some other burdens, but that there's no reason for the law that uh, that the uh, that the state is able to assert, right? Um, but it, but that's the nature of the test. It's called uh, the Anderson Burdick balancing test. Um, the voting rights uh, argument, and at this point, there's no longer what used to be in place, um, where you would look to whether or not under Section Five um, the law was retrogressive, uh, and I can go into detail about what that means. But um, but that's no longer the frame uh, under Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, what one looks to is whether or not it has the effect 
of perpetuating intentional discrimination, right? I know that's a mouthful, um, but mm-hmm. so, so if if the effect of it is to perpetuate um, intentional discrimination, even if that intentional discrimination is private discrimination, or uh, or even sometimes the result of kind of historical structures that are, that that were that initially had uh, intentionally discriminatory roots, um, that's the that's what that uh, looks like. We won't. There's a Section Two case before the United States Supreme Court right now out of Arizona um, that will be really important. Uh, to shaping what the doctrine uh, will look like, you know, by the time uh, judges are ruling, federal judges are ruling uh, on the merits of these particular cases. All right. Um, thank you for that. We're going to be following uh, the court cases as they uh, move ahead in the weeks and months to come. Uh, we do have to get to our final break of the show. Let me just point out very quickly, Patricia, in the jolt today, which you now uh, uh, basically uh, pull together uh, from reporting from your colleagues, you point out that another way that the legislature is uh, giving uh, Raffensperger some payback for the way he acted independently is that the Speaker of the House has now said he and the and Terry England, the House Appropriations Committee, are asking the state auditor to look into how the Secretary of State's office spent federal money on various aspects of the 2020 election cycle. Uh, just one more way in which they're saying to him, not so fast, we still have some power here, Mr. Secretary of State. Right, Patricia? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the Secretary of State's office got about $14 million of CARES Act funding for um, uh, for voting, and that included buying PP. E for uh, poll workers, uh, for outfitting polling stations to make them safer and more socially distant. Um, there were two TV ads that were purchased to talk about voting during a pandemic. Uh, but then uh, the legislators want to know what happens to the rest of that money. And again, it is uh, it's their way of asserting their authority over his role and saying, um, "You not only do we not know, you're not telling us what's going on, but we're going to find out. And um, then we'll talk to you after that. Okay, I've got to get to the final break of the show. Uh, when we come back, I want to turn the page and talk about a new, another federal uh, district court uh, case, which is going to expand potentially who you have the opportunity to vote for in federal elections in the years ahead. This is Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, we're very short on time, but let's pick, take up one last issue. Um, District Court Judge Lee Martin May has ruled in a case that um, the, the ability to get on the Georgia ballot is very restrictive for third parties. Um, the Libertarian Party, for example, um, to get on a federal ballot, a, you know, get somebody as a candidate for Congress on the ballot, would need uh, to collect um, uh, something like 20,000 signatures uh, per uh, candidate. In total, they'd have to collect like 300,000. They'd have to pay some $73,000. And this, Greg, has kept third-party candidates off the ballot at a time when voters tend to be less excited about the Democrats and Republicans (laughs) that are uh, uh, in office these days. Yeah, and this, I mean, look, this is why we haven't seen runoffs in U.S. House races uh, on, in a general election. It's because under 1943 state law, um, it requires a petition signed by at least 5% of registered voters. That's about 19,700 signatures. And since that law was passed, 
not a single third party House candidate in Georgia has ever collected enough signatures to appear on the ballot. So that's about to change. We're about to see a lot more third party candidates, I think, uh, qualify to run um, for some of these U.S. House seats. Um, now, Patricia, I want to be clear. This applies only to uh, cong congressional candidates because the, to get on the uh, state, say, a legislative ballot, the bar is much lower. It's yep. like you need 1%, uh, right? So it only applies to congressional candidates, right? Right. That's exactly right. That's the way uh, that this is worded, and that was what the challenge was about. Um, but I, I listen, I've talked to a lot of uh, hopefuls, even for those state legislative seats, and they find that signature requirement to be extremely onerous. Um, and so I will be so interested to see if this has any kind of a ripple effect um, into any other levels of uh, ballot access, because the laws are really written to protect the two parties right now. Well, I, I would just uh, say that um, uh, even if we get more third-party candidates on the ballot in federal elections, and for example, running for the House of Representatives, the actual impact of that may be fairly limited. Um, first of all, the third-party vote was actually very small in the 2020 election, despite the fact that many voters say that they're not delighted with the two major parties and would like to see more options. When it comes right down to voting, they rarely actually cast their ballot for a third party or an independent candidate these days. Um, so that vote was very small. There are only two House districts in Georgia that are right now, as they're currently drawn at least, that are potentially competitive. Uh, in, and that's the sixth and seventh. Um, I think basically all the other districts are, are safe for one party or the other. And so if you, those are the only two districts, I think, where this could potentially have an impact in terms of forcing uh, a runoff election, unless I'm missing something. Greg and then the Fred were really district. short, but Greg, make a quick yeah, point. Yeah, the 7th District was the closest U.S. House election in the mm. nation back in 2018. And, right. you know, with margins so tight in the statewide races, the U.S. Senate races, of course, the presence of a libertarian candidate forced that runoff between Ossoff and Purdue that changed the outcome right. of the, the control of the U.S. Senate. Um, if Fred, at least it does open the door. If nothing else, it is symbolic of the fact that Georgia will not be able to have such restrictive laws preventing third-party candidates from getting on the ballot. Fred, are you on mute? I, I, I was, sorry. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's an important ruling. 19,700 signatures to get on a U.S. Uh, House ballot is, uh, does seem uh, onerous, and, um, and the judge recognized that. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, Professor Alan Abramowitz, Professor Fred Smith, Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I know Greg and Patricia, I've been in your shoes. I know you're looking ahead at a long, long day at the state capitol. Uh, Bluestein is already racing uh, from the uh, over to the Senate to see what's going on. Patricia, I hope you have a great day. We'll be reading about what you all write in tomorrow's AJC. And of course, GPB News will cover what's happening in the legislature uh, throughout the day and tomorrow as well. So thank you for being here. Have a great day down at the Capitol today. I'm glad I don't have to be there with you, to be honest. <laughs> That's it for us. We will be back with a new show tomorrow when uh, we'll have Donna Lowry, Stephen Fowler from GPB on with us, along with Professor Amy Steigerwald. We're looking forward to that show. 
Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, will be here as well. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and get your vaccine as soon as you possibly can. Bye, everybody.